Research Network will be convening this month to examine the long history of the coronavirus crisis. I'm Stephen Colbrook, a co-convener of the Research Network and a PhD candidate at the Institute. As we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic has cast light on the systemic problems facing public health infrastructures across the Americas, creating a new context for histories of health, the state and inequality. The purpose of this lecture series is to provide an initial historical assessment of the overlapping crises that have given shape to our current moment. As we will see, the antecedents to COVID-19 run deep, stretching back to the 19th century and beyond. Today, I am delighted that we can kick off this lecture with Professor Olivieris, an assistant professor of history at Stanford and an affiliated member of the Stanford Center for Law and History. Professor Olivieris's work lies at the cutting edge of several strands of historiography, particularly histories of health, capitalism, and the antebellum United States. Her recent article in the American Historical Review titled Immunity, Capital and Power in Antebellum New Orleans is a path-breaking study that explores how survivors of yellow fever leveraged their immunity for social, economic and political power. Professor Olivieris is also the author of the forthcoming book, Necropolis, Disease, Power and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom. Before we hear the lecture, there are a few quick pieces of housekeeping. We'll have a 15 to 20 minute uh, Q&A after the lecture. Please try and keep your questions as succinct as possible so we can get around as many of you as possible. Uh, to ask a question, either raise your hand using the buttons at the bottom of your screen or type it into the chat. We'll then come to people in the order that they ask their question. When asking a question, please remember to turn on your audio and video. So without further de delay, I'd like to welcome Professor Olivieris to the Institute to deliver the first lecture in this series on the coronavirus crisis. Well, thank you very much for that incredibly kind introduction, Stephen. Um, I'm going to share my screen. If that, can we see? Um, can we see this now? Yes, I think so. Okay. So um, thank you for having me here today. It's lovely to be with you all, even if um, only virtually. So I'm going to talk about two concepts today, um, amino capital and amino privilege, that I've developed in the course of my own historical work, um, ideas that have reemerged in political discourse and culture today, perhaps especially in the United States. Um, so let's start off with a very broad view of the COVID situation in the US. So we are now 12 months into this coronavirus pandemic. Um, a pandemic that has claimed the lives of half a million Americans and infected over 29 million people, um, disproportionately poor people of color. So that's about a fifth of all the deaths worldwide from coronavirus. Um, the UK, of course, has had about 125,000 um, deaths, which makes the um, per capita death rate even higher than the US. Um, now, the situation um, feels quite different um, than it was a year ago, um, even verging on hopeful. And I, you know, I say this aloud and I think to myself, don't, don't, you know, don't say such things because you're jinxing it. Um, I'm getting my vaccine next week. Um, my parents in the UK have had the jab, as, as has my brother in Oxford. Um, we are globally all extremely quite lucky. Over 100 countries have still not had a single dose of this vaccine. But still, as I sit from my home office, um, a room that I very seldom leave, um, it is clear that all of our lives have changed considerably over the last year. Um, I remain nervous for the health of my friends and family. Time itself has moved like very stressful molasses. Um, I'm sick of teaching online and I feel that I've lost my ability to socialize properly. Um, and most of all, I, as I, you know, I think like everyone, um, is exhausted. And this goes beyond sort of mere pandemic fatigue. Um, it's an exhaustion and an exasperation with the politicization of this pandemic that has morphed into a lightning rod in the culture wars. So what do I mean by this? 
well, Americans have tended to approach this crisis in one of two ways, um, refracted through the lens of partisanship. So the first viewpoint um, held by almost all medical and public health professionals sees the minimization of death as the paramount goal of the government's response. So this group in general has advocated for a temporary science-driven restructuring of society in which individual rights are temporarily subordinated for the good of the collective. Now, this group sees the medical and economic crises gripping the United States and larger world as inextricably linked and argues that the economy will only improve when and if we control the virus and we achieve herd immunity through a vaccine, not through exposure, um, as this is, has only created more opportunities for the virus to mutate. Um, now, animated by the guiding principle of risk reduction, then, um, people of this persuasion advocate for widespread mask wearing, um, remote working where possible, tracking and tracing, social distance, um, absentee voting, and lockdowns when necessary. So what I think has been trickiest for this group um, that I imagine that most of us um, here today are a part of is how we measure risk. So um, should schools stay open as a matter of priority, even if schools give virus opportunity to spread? Um, what auxiliary harms have been done to us all, but especially to young people who have now been learning maths over Zoom for the last year? And who should get the vaccine first? Now, the second viewpoint, and the one that I'm going to focus on today, um, holds that Significant death during the pandemic is inevitable and acceptable. Um, so essentially this group says people die all the time from car crashes, from drug addictions, and from the flu. And we shouldn't stop people from living to prevent them from dying. So they argue the public health crisis and the economic crisis are separate and that shutting down the economy has had no salutary effect and indeed makes everything worse. Now this position is easy to understand and actually sympathize with, at least in part. Um, it is extremely hard to swallow um, a lot of the ancillary aspects of shutdowns. Um, so savings dwindle and businesses collapse and travel is stunted. I went to a Zoom wedding and a Zoom funeral in the last month and you know major events are passing us by in crushing ways. But the extreme end of this group, um, which found its greatest champion in the White House just two months ago, um, takes these ideas to their most mercenary, individualist and cynical ends. So they look with skepticism on established and accepted science and say the virus is a hoax, a conspiracy theory um, concocted by China or Democrats or, you know, probably today, Meghan Markle um, to undercut Donald Trump. So many people in this camp cling to disease denialism or know-nothingism, even brandishing this know-nothingism as a badge of honor, a symbol of patriotism. So for many months last year, um, Trump appeared to approach this disease without seriousness or vigor, um, declining to wear a mask or follow basic social distancing guidance. Um, Trump tweeted about liberating states and promoted discredited therapies. Um, pulling from, the, tobacco, um, from the, the playbook of tobacco companies and climate change deniers, Trump cast doubt on statistics. He, came, he said that the rise in cases reflected only increased testing, not new cases. And he claimed that the number of deaths had been doctored and that COVID wasn't that lethal. At the first presidential debate, Trump made fun of now president um, Joe Biden for his consistent mask wearing. And then Trump, uh, then Trump became sick himself. Now, some were hopeful that his own infection would pop the bubble, um, as it did seem to do at least for a little while with Boris Johnson. But from the hospital, Trump tweeted that the coronavirus was not that bad. Um, he insisted in sickness that he felt better and healthier than he had in 20 years. And then he railed against government scientists, dubbing them idiots and traitors and calling Anthony Fauci, America's top infectious disease expert, a disaster. And then Trump and others started to push the line that in getting sick, Trump was actually a patriot, that he had had to get sick for the good of the country. 
Um, his communications director actually faulted Joe Biden for not contracting the coronavirus, arguing that Trump was stronger for having gotten sick and that he, quote, has experience now fighting the virus as an individual. Those firsthand experiences, Joe Biden, he doesn't have those. So I could give a dozen examples of Trump downplaying the virus and his team brandishing his recovery um, as not just a medical victory, but a moral one. But the scariest aspect um, of this disease, denial, disease denialism, however, excuse me, um, is that it actively encouraged Americans to embrace infection, to risk their lives and the lives of others around them to reopen the economy. Um, and this is a picture from just a couple days ago of a child burning a mask um, in Idaho um, as a sort of anti-government protest. Now, his administration um, embraced a de facto policy of pursuing herd immunity, of letting the virus run its course unimpeded. Um, in this view, the government had no responsibility to keep people healthy during the worst public health crisis in a century. Um, it's going away, Trump promised at the final presidential debate during a viral surge. Um, we're ha we have to reopen our country. One day, he said, like a miracle, it will be gone. Well, thankfully, he is gone now. So um, while I found Trump's rhetoric, excuse me, I'm going to, while I found Trump's rhetoric um, dangerous, unscientific, and distasteful, I did not find it shocking, per se, um, because the exact same social, political, and rhetorical patterns around disease, risk, personal responsibility, race, and disease denialism existed in the American Deep South two centuries ago. Only the disease politicized then was far more deadly than COVID. This was yellow fever. So in the 19th century Deep South, and especially in New Orleans, um, the major hub of the Cotton Kingdom and the nation's largest slave trading port, this mosquito-borne virus, yellow fever, routinely ravaged the population and reached epidemic proportions every two or three years. This is um, a drawing from the middle of an epidemic. Now, every um, each summer, about 8%, um, excuse me, um, now, each summer, about 8% of the population died from yellow fever. Um, society was upended as thousands fled or died um, in panic. Um, countless people were left orphaned, widowed, and bereaved. Now, the 1853 epidemic killed 12,000 people in New Orleans alone, making it one of the worst natural disasters in U.S. history. In total, yellow fever killed about a quarter of a million people across the, the urban deep south during the 19th century. Now, yellow fever was so petrifying as so little was known about it. Um, there was no cure, there was no vaccination, there was no conclusive evidence of disease transmission. There was no explanation, satisfactory explanation for why it killed some while leaving others um, unaffected. Um, and they did not know that it was spread by mosquitoes until the very end of the 19th century. Moreover, it was a sudden and horrible way to die with victims famously vomiting up partly coagulated blood, roughly the color and consistency of coffee grounds at the end of their illness. It was so painful that even pious victims screamed profanities as the end neared. Now, the luckiest people contracted milder flu-like cases in childhood, but overall, 19th century victims had around a 50% chance of dying. The other luckier half became acclimated, as it was called, or immune for life. Now, the elites of this society, um, so this is the cotton merchants um, and the slave traders um, and the politicians, so um, they came to accept that yellow fever, um, this was a situation that could not be fixed, that it wasn't going to go away. Now, New Orleans sits at the base of the Mississippi River um, in a pestilential swamp um, at just one foot above sea level. Yet New Orleans was so geopolitically and economically important to the United States and to individuals' wealth that it could not be given up despite its ecological limitations. So to make the so-called cotton kingdom work, you needed to have a city here, a sort of depot of sorts, to handle the mountains of cotton and sugar produced in the Mississippi Valley. 
And these commodity industries required people to make them work, lots of people, both free and enslaved, to keep the wheels of this extremely lucrative region rolling. So they had to encourage mass migration of white people from the American North and from Europe, as well as encourage forced black migration through the domestic slave trade. Now, the good news, um, if you can call it that, was that yellow fever survivors became immune. And deep southerners did not actually understand very much about immunity. They euphemized it as acclimation or creolization or seasoning. But they did have a crude grasp that on the fact that getting sick and then recovering from this disease was the only way to survive long term. So with this knowledge um, that survivors were safe, Orwinians adapted to their fatal environment. Um, and generated an invisible epidemiological hierarchy which commingled with and exacerbated the racial hierarchy of whites, free black people, and enslaved people. So here, so-called acclimated citizen, these are yellow fever survivors. Um, so these acclimated citizens were at the top of civic and commercial life, uh, and they were followed by unacclimated strangers, so-called. Um, and these people were sort of in this kind of probationary period awaiting their brush with this disease. And um, acclimated citizens and unacclimated strangers were followed by the dead, so those in the local logic without sufficient bravery or morality to survive. Now, the problem was that acclimation was definitionally vague. Um, yellow fever does not leave physical scars. Not everyone experienced the telltale symptom of black vomit. Moreover, leading physicians did not agree that yellow fever was a discrete illness and frequently misdiagnosed it as malaria. So consequently, there was a ton of misinformation and rumor surrounding the acclimation question. Now, some doctors said that a person was acclimated if they had lived in New Orleans um, for six years without interruption. Others said that, that it required surviving yellow fever and not just some generic fever or malaria. You had to survive yellow fever to become acclimated. Um, some assumed that children, if they survived past the age of five, were immune. And it was likewise assumed that Creoles, so these are people who were born and raised in Louisiana or the tropics, were immune as a kind of birthright. But these are um, a lot of assumptions um, with life and death consequences that were impossible to verify without diagnostic, diagnostic blood testing. Um, so as the novelist Mark Twain um, and steamboat captain Mark Twain put it, acclimation was a highly sensitive and deeply personal topic on which, quote, no two persons exactly agreed. So in this high risk, low information context of 19th century New Orleans, immunity was invisible and performative, a matter of faith as much as fact. But people performed their immunity as best they could to wield what I call amino capital, which is socially acknowledged acclimation. And they did this because with amino capital, they gained access to previously inaccessible realms of social, economic, and political power. Now, in fact, most um, young white men steeled themselves to follow the advice of the Picayune, um, the, the daily newspaper in New Orleans, which said, quote, if a man intends to make himself a citizen of New Orleans, his first duty is to become acclimated. He owes it to himself and to society. Now, immunity really mattered. Um, unacclimated people, um, depicted here, Unacclimated people were ostracized and socially and sort of considered to be social and economic pariahs. They could not get jobs. They could not get life insurance. They could not get credit. Um, banks would not lend to them. They could not marry certain people and they could not socialize in certain in certain um, circles. Um, they were often barred from voting. And on the other side of disease, um, Orleans described acclimation like being reborn. So what do I mean by this? Um, as one newspaper declared in 1853, the acclimated man walked the streets with a tremendously bold swagger, sneering at the unacclimated who darted about timidly and nervously. The acclimated man poo-pooed yellow fever and called it a mere nothing. 
or as one Connecticut immigrant boasted after he had survived yellow fever, quote, victory had perched upon my banner. I was an acclimated citizen and as such received into full favor in the good city of New Orleans, where they distrust everybody until they become endorsed by the yellow fever. Now, later, um, in later years, Orleanians would boast of the year of their acclimation, so 1817 or, or 1833 or 1849, like a membership badge and an invisible fraternity of survivors. Um, some would even celebrate their acclamations like an anniversary with a yearly feast. Now, considering all of the impediments faced by the unacclimated, even Dr. Um, E.H. Barton, who was the president of New Orleans 1841 Board of Health, suggested that, quote, the value of acclimation is worth the risk. So um, if the difference between stigma and privilege was surviving a disease, it is no wonder that people actively sought sickness. And I've seen all sorts of examples um, in the archives of people injecting um, diseased of yellow, yellow fever victims' blood into their own veins or eating it. Um, I've seen examples of people jumping into their just dead friends' um, beds, rolling around in their bedsheets, hoping to get sick. Now, let's look at a couple examples of, um, of how deeply the immunity calculus penetrated this deeply unequal slave society by conferring or, or eroding privilege. Um, I have about a million other examples that I can bring up in the Q&A. So first, employment. So seeking to capitalize um, on their hard-earned immunity, whether real or imagined, white job seekers filled newspapers with personal declarations of acclamation. So one clerk enumerated his credentials in this order. Quote, well-acclimated, well-educated, speaking five languages with the best of references, notable integrity, and business capacities. A middle-aged man claimed that he was, quote, well-acquainted with the city and also well-acclimated between the latitudes of 32 degrees and the tropics. Now, employers often demanded um, parental residency in New Orleans, proof of local birth, or else a physician's letter certifying acclamation. Um, from the boss's perspective, it was a waste of resources to train someone for a detail-oriented job only to see him stricken or dead by the autumn. As the, uh, as the unemployed German immigrant Gustav Dresel lamented in the 1830s, quote, I looked around in vain for a position as a bookkeeper, but to engage a young man who is not acclimated would be a bad speculation, end quote. Now, amid the fatal churn, um, acclimated men could parlay immunity into raises and greater responsibilities with the managerial class of merchant houses, wholesalers, and groceries composed almost exclusively um, of white men who claimed to be immune to yellow fever. So Cotton Clerk H.J. Masson remarked that in the, um, that the 1837 epidemic um, was the worst in memory, um, ravaging the unacclimated and thinning the counting houses considerably. Um, so consequently, there was, quote, considerable demand for entry-level clerks. Um, and after a competing cotton factor, Mr. Stringer lost his clerk to fever. Stringer was very anxious for the acclimated Mason um, to come and join him. Now, even after rigorous acclimation screening, employees still died in droves. Um, as one traveler noted after the epidemic of 1836, quote, five perished out of one counting house, another house buried their bookkeeper, employed another, buried him, and employed a third before the dead season had passed. Now, such mortality among the allegedly immune suggests that clerks either misjudged their immunity or they willfully lied about it. Now, that was a high-risk lie. Um, false declarations of acclamation merited termination. It was considered to be an unimpeachable sign of untrustworthiness. But many apparently believed the lie was worth it. Um, they would feign ignorance, then worry about surviving the disease later. Now, in time, um, surviving yellow fever evolved into a sort of moral or patriotic act, with a successful brush with yellow fever becoming the quintessential demonstration of calculated risk-taking in this marketplace, that a white man had willingly gambled his life and had paid his biological dues. Now, 
all elites um, in New Orleans factored their successful acclamations into their Genesis stories. So though he could have fled in the summer of 1801, for example, um, one 18-year-old Irish immigrant named Monsell White remained, realizing, quote, alas, there was no help for it but to take my chance. Now, reminiscing decades later, um, White recalled his acclamation as a major life turning point. Um, so with only an informal education, um, White progressed quickly from bookkeeping, running his own cotton factory, to sugar planting, to politicking. Um, he died one of the richest men in America. And all of this he attributed partly to his acclamation. So like all most powerful white Orleanians, White framed his acclamation as a choice. Um, he had decided to contract yellow fever and he had willed himself to survive. So in this logic, lesser men literally chose to die because they were drunkards, because they were effeminate or sexually deviant or cowardly or unpatriotic or unclean or because they did not seek timely medical care. Now, distilling the randomness of life and death to a matter of individual choice fed into this myth of meritocratic capitalism, that all whites of sufficient moral and physical courage had the potential for survival and success in New Orleans, that economic and social success was the result of a man's willingness to take controlled epidemiological risks. Um, never mind that the sunny vision of yellow fever clashed with the fatal reality. So the cold facts of disease risk that half of all victims would die um, mattered very little. The myth of immunological reward proved far more powerful. Thus, while epidemics raged, um, young men um, then, just as they do now, um, routinely touted aspirational mantras about human agency over disease, insisting that yellow fever was a mild ailment, um, boasting that they had never enjoyed better health, and reassuring family that they would succeed where others had failed. Now, such optimism um, may have been self-delusional, but most unacclimated migrants bought into amino capital and the hierarchy that it created, um, believing that the system would benefit them um, eventually. After all, immunological discrimination was just one more form of bias in a city essentially premised on inequality. Now, the logic, of course, of this um, could easily slip into abuses and exploitation. Um, so recruited directly off the boat, 30, um, thousands, of, thousands of Irishmen built the new Basin Canal in the 1830s. And working in ghastly conditions, between um, 6,000 and 10,000 Irishmen died of yellow fever while digging the four-mile stretch. But the bosses did not blink an eye. Um, they actually preferred a labor model that focused on replacing the dead rather than keeping people alive because high turnover cost them nothing. Um, it also impeded laborers' ability to organize and demand better pay, conditions, and rights. Now, these ideas of epidemiology, um, bodies, um, and value came to exist in New Orleans because city officials essentially threw their hands up in the face of yellow fever. So New Orleans had no competent institutions tasked with tracking or defining disease. Um, boards of health came and went. Unpaved streets stank with stagnant water, with night soil, and with rotting animal carcasses. Quarantines buckled under pressure from the business community. And outside the charity hospital, the city had very few places for poor victims of disease to receive care. Now, even in the larger Southern context, um, New Orleans in, um, invested significantly less money into ameliorating disease-related problems than other cities. So in 1850, for example, New Orleans spent just four cents per person per year on public health, compared with 69 cents in Boston. Um, in some sense, you could say that this is nonsensical, that the nation's deadliest city by far, um, with triple the national mortality average, spent the least in public health, also in poor relief as well. Now, most um, Orleanians res resigned themselves to the fact that their government took essentially no action to combat yellow fever. So no sanitation, no sewering, and no quarantines. 
Now, perhaps the priorities of the commercial civic elite would have differed had they worried that mass death would undercut their specific vision of commodity enslaved capitalism. But they themselves were already immune, or at least they pretended to be. Um, and in this manufacturing averse and laborer rich city where thousands of black bodies were auctioned each season and every ship brought in fresh white bodies from Ireland and Germany to replace the dead, there was no shortage of labor. So whether defeated by disease or defiantly deaf to their constituents' needs, um, most politicians came to embrace the philosophy that the only effective long-term solution to, to epidemic yellow fever was not public health, but paradoxically, more yellow fever. Um, expensive water pumps and quarantines only delayed the inevitable. Now, the elite culture of apathetic fatalism ran deep. Um, even at the height of epidemics, the city council barely discussed disease, um, instead preoccupying itself with parochial matters like finances or zoning or bread weights. Um, pursuing solutions to yellow, to yellow fever was considered to be a poor use of political capital, and there were essentially no negative consequences for politicians who avoided the disease question. Now, in 1820, um, property requirements barred nearly 60% of white men from voting in New Orleans. So excluding so many white males while also, of course, excluding women, free black people, enslaved people, recent immigrants, and children meant that only a small proportion of city residents actually held politicians accountable. And luckily for politicians, those inhabitants who clamored for public health infrastructure quieted over time as they came to accept the filthiness of the urban condition, or they gained immunity, or they fled, or they died. Now, um, as naturalization re required five years of residence, there was also a strong overlap between the unacclimated, the non-property, and the non-citizen. And figuring that a large percentage would die before becoming enfranchised citizens, um, politicians found the unacclimated an easy block to ignore. Because after all, dead men did not vote, acclimated men did. Now, demonstrating how little concern they had for their constituents, most politicians quit the city during epidemics. Um, and in fact, political absenteeism during epidemics was the norm, and it crippled the function of government. So, so in the autumn of 1804, um, a season in which um, between 1,000 and 1,500 um, people died, seven meetings of the city council were canceled because no councilors, um, city councilors showed up. Um, and in 1853, the year of the city's worst epidemic, with about 12,000 deaths, um, politicians fled before passing any kind of appropriations bill for public health. Now, yellow fever also factored, um, factored heavily into election scheduling, with politicians routinely jockeying to schedule local and state elections in early September, um, the precise moment when unaccommodated people were most likely to have fled town or else be too sick or scared to vote. Now, Bernard Marigny, um, who is one of the richest and most powerful Louisiana planters, um, he submitted um, during the state's constitutional convention in 1845 that scheduling elections to take place during epidemics was acceptable because, quote, no good citizen was afraid of yellow fever. Rather, acclamation was the baptism of citizenship, um, offering a guarantee of devotion to the country. Now, with politicians intent to avoid or exploit the yellow fever problem, most people quickly accepted the harsh reality that public health was private acclamation. Now, of course, um, remember that the Deep South was a slave society. Um, so here's the most important way that humans manipulated unthinking biology for unequal and white supremacist ends. Now, white Southerners took as axiomatic that black people were less affected by yellow fever than whites. Now, physicians and sextons um, in the Deep South repeatedly emphasized the lower death rate of black people from yellow fever, suggesting, for instance, that only three black people died from yellow fever in New Orleans in 1849 as compared with 766 whites. Um, Dr. Josiah Knott, um, who 
was a, a famous Southern physician um, who claimed to, in fact, um, have cared for more yellow fever patients um, than any doctor in America. He posited that, quote, Negro blood is an antidote against yellow fever for the smallest admixture of it with the white will protect against this disease. Um, Dr. Samuel Cartwright, um, who is also a very famous Southern doctor, most famous perhaps for his medical theories about um, drapetomania um, or rascality, said that black people were, quote, perfect non-conductors of yellow fever. Now, everyone in the New Orleans medical and political communities um, publicly echoed these words, even if they harbored private doubts. Now, modern epidemiologists, however, have discovered no mechanism for so-called hereditary resistance to yellow fever as they have for malaria. So in short, the theory of natural black immunity to yellow fever is not true. Um, there is no epidemiological basis for it. But this did not stop pro-slavery theorists from doubling down on it. Um, they argued, in fact, that yellow fever resistance was racialized um, and that God had made black people um, immunologically superior specifically, specifically so that they would be enslaved in the American South on a massive scale. And because of this special God-given immunity, whites argued that black people could do all sorts of labor in dangerous and diseased spaces. So the city levee, um, the docks, sugar fields, labor that they claimed would kill white people. Now, immunity thus signaled um, in pro-slavery logic that slavery was a scientific destiny for black people. Now, immunity was construed in all sorts of um, very strange, um, weird ways. So in 1853, one newspaper argued that as a divine punishment, Black people lost their natural resistance to yellow fever in freedom. Therefore, that, quote, slavery was the condition, condition best suited to black people. Another article maintained that the only people who died of yellow fever were abolitionists. And brushing aside the abolitionist critique that yellow fever was the South's divine punishment for slavery, Cartwright um, proclaimed black immunity was, quote, due to a special providence, giving black people a, quote, special opportunity, a longevity to display their gratitude to their civilizing and Christianizing white masters, whom they looked on upon as akin to gods, meeting them with a ready bow and grin. Yes, now, of course, this thinking was nothing short of alchemy. Um, and despite the pious professions about enslaved people's natural immunity, no white enslaver would buy a person without an express guarantee of acclamation. So, like fancy or choice or likely, acclimated was a common descriptor in slave sale advertisements, a euphemism that conveniently reduced a person's suffering into a marketable asset. So acclimated slaves commanded higher prices, um, between 25 and 50% more on average. Now, let me give you one concrete example of this. So in, in 1815, th um, a three times bankrupt cotton planter named John Palfrey was in a pickle because the large commission house of Chu and Ralph was calling in his loan and, and he did not have the money to pay it. So Chu and Ralph demanded that he revert a large portion, of, at least a portion of the money he, that he owed in the form of enslaved people um, that he had bought from these merchants years before. But Palfrey argued that um, the 10 slaves that he had purchased from them in 1811 should cover significantly more of his debt by 1815. So why was this? because these people were now, quote, seasoned to the climate and had survived yellow fever, a circumstance which adds very considerably to their value. Now, Palfrey used a nine-year-old girl named Maria um, for his, to, to sort of do this calculation as an example, claiming that her value had increased to the tune of 5% per year. Now, Palfrey insisted that he should be compensated for the risk that he had adopted in taking on unacclimated property as the, quote, risk was mine and has cost me loss and expense and a great deal of trouble and anxiety. So for white men like uh, in Louisiana, like Palfrey, um, who would shortly lose two white sons to yellow fever, black people's alleged acclimation was a risk reducible to a numerical value, and it was his prerogative um, to leverage these people's alleged immunity for his gain. So 
like everything else in the um, slave market, acclimation status was a guess, um, but a white person's ability to judge it was considered a sign of mastery, of cunning, and of intelligence, um, that a white man could read another person's body and discern its maximum value. Now, enslaved people, of course, probably did not see their immunity as um, an asset or a capitalist calculation in the same way that whites did. Um, we do not know what Maria or any other enslaved person Palfrey owned um, thought about this speculation. It must have been very horrible, of course, to know that even their sickness and suffering was just one more matter for speculation in the debt and credit markets underwriting the Cotton Kingdom. And petrified of yellow fever like everybody else, um, enslaved people could not flee or afford expensive doctors independently. Um, they did not have the option of not taking on disease risk. And if immunity could save their lives and constitute a key aspect of an enslaved person's self-worth and identity, it added nothing to their personal wealth or standing. As slaves were embodied capital, um, acclimation only enhanced the value and safety of that capital for their white owners. Now, by the 1820s, however, um, Many whites, uh, many enslavers considered New Orleans too risky for their expensive enslaved property. Um, even if a slave was declared acclimated, fraud was common as traders routinely fabricated backstories to enhance a person's value and hasten a sale. And with thousands of poor famine fleeing Irishmen pouring onto the docks by the 1840s, the labor calculus shifted. Um, the proportion of enslaved persons in the city therefore dropped from 50% in 1806, um, 50%, 5-0, to under 25% in 1840 to just 8% in 1860. Capitalist needs um, pushed acclimated slaves into surrounding plantations, um, safer, less diseased, and more efficient sites for black people to create more capital for whites. So I will conclude with just a few points um, that marry the past and the present. So in the 19th century, surviving yellow fever was classed as an indication of moral superiority for a white man. Um, as one Orleanian congratulated his convalescent friend, quote, he had finally succeeded in getting out his naturalization papers. He is now in every respect a citizen of New Orleans and long may he live to enjoy the glorious privilege. Now, those at the top of New Orleans economic and political life, all allegedly survivors of yellow fever, obtained a sort of de facto moral legitimacy, um, a tropical if ecumenical twist on Max Weber's aristocracy of the elect. So in their public willingness to roll the epidemiological dice and risk their lives, they had been endowed with both a practical and moral right to thrive in slave racial capitalism, a system that they classified as a harsh but essentially honest meritocracy. And they, of course, colluded to invert this logic for black people who were denied the benefits of immunocapital with their immunity emphasizing their statelessness, their movability, and their malleability. Now, the Cotton Kingdom was premised um, upon the value proposition that an extreme amount of disease risk was worth the potentially vast rewards for both white individuals and the United States writ large. Um, people were, were, were willing to take on epidemiological risk um, for economic and social security. Um, now, equating survival with morality um, justified the exploitation of unacclimated whites and all black people, and it also made New Orleans an unequal and asymmetrical and deeply miserable place to live for the majority of its inhabitants. Now, COVID-19 um, has had the uncanny ability to lay bare who belongs in our societies and even which lives matter the most. Um, COVID-19 um, is a lot less fatal than yellow fever. And while the vaccine is here, I think um, we will all be living with um, this coronavirus and disease risk for some time still. So in the U.S., um, many poor people are uh, more, many more, excuse me. Many poor people, um, disproportionately people of color, um, have not had the option of staying home during this pandemic, um, of, limiting, of limiting their disease risk. And nor have they necessarily had other employment options or recourse with their employers um, should these employers make demands on them. 
So about nine months ago, we were seeing um, this sort of worst case scenario unfold where people um, without labor protection or other options were forced to take on this disease risk to get and keep their jobs, um, to support their families and to pay rent. Um, so whatever Trump or the sort of you know, capitalist said, um, that wasn't good policy. It was an invitation to introduce more inequality and suffering into our system. So I will end with this plea, which I um, regularly make um, to people who live around here, where actually I live in an area of the United States um, with the highest anti-vaxxer rate um, in the nation, um, for at least for a blue state. Um, so please get vaccinated when you can, um, and let's take a lesson from the past um, and not allow this pandemic um, and notions of immunity to further exacerbate our pre-existing social, racial, and economic inequalities, because we've been there before and we do not need to go back. So thank you. Great, thanks Catherine for such a thought-provoking and expansive lecture. So we're gonna have a Q&A now for about 20 minutes. Uh, just to remind everyone, if you have a question, please either raise your hand or post it in the group chat. I will then come to you in order of when you ask your question. So please ask away. Paolo. Paolo, did you have a question? Okay, well, just whilst we wait for uh, people to come in with their questions, I'll ask one of my own. Um, so I was wondering, given that the next stage of the pandemic uh, will likely see uh, yearly vaccinations against different strains of the disease, how do you see uh, hierarchies of immunoprivilege mapping onto other social hierarchies? Um, well, Many ways, and the, and the major one, of course, is that, you know, this is going to play out on a global, um, I think, in, in sort of global ways, um, very differently, of course. Um, so here in the United States, um, the sort of vaccine rollout is, has improved, um, but we're actually having a vaccine rollout, which is, um, you know, a very different situation than most people in the entire, in the, in the rest of the world are experiencing. Um, and then this is going to come down to, you know, I think this is going to be much like, um, you know, if, 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 as it seems like right now, um, there's going to be a sort of yearly booster shot that everyone will get um, that will protect against new mutations and that will have to be um, sort of living with this, you know, perhaps in, in perpetuity. Um, and in fact, we've never eliminated a um, disease that has an animal host like this before. Um, this is, so we probably will be um, living with this maybe for the rest of our lives. Um, I, I know I, I hope not, um, but I think that we're going to be seeing. I mean, this is this to me speaks to um, the inequities of various different healthcare systems. Um, I, I, I the, it's interesting. I'm an, I'm 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 British. Um, the NHS, of course, has its problems, um, but I, um, you know, the I, I miss the NHS so dearly um, these days because American healthcare is um, a system that is expensive um, and creates just in and of itself it creates more and more inequality and this you know we'll see if actually you know this round of vaccine is free um, we'll see what actually happens in the future and if employers can mandate um, that you must take the vaccine or you know how often you must take the vaccine um, th these are all sort of live questions still mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, great sorry uh, with the q and I think there was a problem I didn't initially allow people to share their audio and share their video uh, so I think uh, you should now be able to do that. Uh, so, Paolo, do you still have a question you want to ask? Ah, you just posted it in the chat. Okay. 
So Paolo's question is, uh, can you say something about the perception of epidemiological threat from abroad? Uh, so, Marilia Espinoza argues that Havana was seen as a source of yellow fever epidemics in New Orleans in a later period. Do your sources show that too in this earlier period? Yes, this is, so this is, you've touched on the absolute sort of crucial question um, that there, um, there were sort of people all, over, all across the map about this um, in New Orleans because the debate um, basically by the 1850s was whether this disease was imported or um, sort of organic to New Orleans um, and how it was caused. And so later in the 19th century, you're absolutely correct, um, you see um, increasingly this, um, you see increasingly New Orleans um, politicians and doctors are embracing the theory of contagionism, um, which is this idea that um, yellow fever is spread on ships through contaminated, sort of contaminated goods, um, materials, bedding, etc., but also um, especially by mosquitoes. And therefore, we see, um, we most certainly see um, Havana as being, you know, people are wary of ships from Havana and the rest of the Caribbean. Um, however, in the earlier period, um, basically all doctors maintained um, that yellow fever was not contagious. Um, it was actually non-contagious. Therefore, it was not spread on ships. And therefore, quarantines um, had no effect. So this is very actually um, sort of um, it's very cynical, but um, it was very sort of clever scientific thinking. Or you, the, this, we're, this is an example of people using science um, or sort of bending science to their um, economic interests. So um, Orwinian politicians clung to this theory of anti-contagionism um, much longer, um, much, much longer than their contemporaries in other cities, um, even other southern cities like Charleston or Savannah or um, in, and then in the American North, um, Philadelphia or New York. And this basically said that um, this allowed them to say, well, um, quarantines or water pumps or sanitation, these all of these public health measures, they might work elsewhere. Um, however, um, they will have no impact on New Orleans. So it was really only after the Civil War um, by the 1870s that we see an embrace um, of what, what Mariela Espinosa talks about, um, where it, where you know we see an embrace of this kind of new contagionist theory of yellow fever um, that actually it was contagious though not contagious in the same way that syphilis or smallpox would be not through human to human contact but some other way. Great. So uh, Lauren asks, were there situ were these situations particular to New Orleans? I think I remember reading Memphis losing their city charter due to yellow fever because so many people fled. Are there other comparables? So. Um, that's a great question. Um, so, New Orleans is sort of the, I sort of think about it as, you know, it's the, this is the, you know, sort of summit of Everest, but there are base camp fours. Um, there are other places um, that have sort of similar patterns. So, um, by the 19th century in the United States, um, yellow fever um, basically impacted most, for the most part, um, other, just basically, almost exclusively southern cities. Um, so, in, there's a very famous epidemic of yellow fever in um, in Philadelphia in 1793, um, which killed, I think, I think about 5,000 um, people within the city and another 10,000 people fled. Um, Memphis um, suffered um, very seriously in the 1878 epidemic of yellow fever. Um, and in fact, yellow fever had never gone that far north up the Mississippi River before. And so the sort of city population was entirely unprepared for it. So it caused absolute panic um, because basically railways and steamships are now propelling mosquitoes and infected people faster and faster up the Mississippi Valley um, on the river. Now other cities, um, so the, the other sort of most comparable city perhaps to this, well I, I would say Havana actually probably is um, the most, um, the, the most, the aptest comparison in that um, 
this is another city with a very sort of apathetic ruling class um, where people said, well, yellow fever is a problem that is not going to go away. Um, if you want to come here, nobody's, nobody's forcing you to come here unless you are enslaved. Um, for white people, you have chosen to come here, um, and this is just one of the many um, things that you have to deal with um, in living here. Um, and then in the American context, of course, Charleston um, is another sort of, is perhaps the most um, comparable city. However, Charleston, um, Charleston adopts various public health measures that New Orleans refuses to take up. So by 1817, 1820, um, New Orleans is putting in place quarantines. Um, they are also, um, they've also installed, they have installed a sort of public health surveillance system in which they are collecting data. And the people who are collecting this data are not um, the lackeys of city councilors or um, sort of under the fees and patronage of um, boards of health members. These are independent doctors who, um, are you know who have funding um, that is separate and independent from the city council, so they're basically apolitical. But it's a great question about sort of comparisons to other places. Excellent. So uh, Thomas asks, have you any information on how the yellow fever epidemics affected the local native peoples of New Orleans? It's a great question. Um, the answer is not explicitly, but of course, I mean th this this disease. Um, would obviously have impacted um, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw. There, there would have been um, there would have been um, major disruption for people for you know people across the region. However, also, you know this is this is um, yellow fever is an urban disease for the most part, um, and we see this didn't really. Um, there, there must have been cases in the 18th century. We do know this for a fact. Um, so um, yellow fever has been you know, sort of sprung onto the scene um, in the 1600s, the mid 1600s um, in the Caribbean. And we know that because um, New Orleans had quite regular um, sort of sea contact with Caribbean cities and islands, we know that yellow fever must have come um, during the 18th century. However, um, documented epidemic that is sort of undeniable that Orleans at the time cited as, oh, that Orleans at the time cited as the first epidemic of yellow fever in New Orleans was um, in 1796. And this is at a moment, of course, when New Orleans is, um, this is a, this is quite quite a sort of um, a city where all sorts of all many different groups of people um, live in New Orleans. We have enslaved people from Africa. We have enslaved people who are Creole who have been born in Louisiana. We have um, French, um, you know, colonists. We have Spanish colonists. We have American colonists. Um, there were plenty of indigenous people living within um, or just without, um, just outside of New Orleans. And so likely um, because there, I, I've never seen any any actual. Um, precise sources talking about this and I looked and looked and looked um, I, I would say I would it would suggest to me that indigenous people were impacted just the same as um, just the same as everybody living within New Orleans was okay great so Joseph asks could Catherine say something about the racialization of disease and immunity developed after emancipation did the ideas of people of color being more resistant to disease influence Jim Crow era public health policy at all, for example? Hi, Joseph. Um, nice, to, nice to not see you, but um, see you through, through the ether of um, the screen. Um, so yes, this is um, a really interesting and vexing question. So if, as I talked about, um, if disease, if yellow fever before the Civil War um, was sort of used as a justification by pro-slavery theorists and by doctors, um, for why enslaved, for why black people should be enslaved, um, as as they claim that this resistance to yellow fever um, 
is God-given and proof, in fact, that they should be enslaved. So that's sort of the orthodoxy before the Civil War. But then um, you rightly ask the question, so what happens after the Civil War? Um, how does, you know, when, when we have this new um, sort of social and racial um, and legal order after emancipation, what happens then? So um, it's sort of extraordinary because the same doctors that were arguing that um, Black people were naturally immune to yellow fever before the war. Then they quickly changed tune, um, really by 1866. So just a year after the war, you start seeing these pamphlets being written saying, you know, we actually had it wrong all along. Um, it's really not, um, it's really not black skin, it's slave status that conferred immunity. So therefore, in fact, um, this war, it's, it's cruel. Um, it, it, you know, what happened with this war is cruel because um, these Northern abolitionists and Abraham Lincoln and the radical Republicans in Congress, they just want to, um, essentially, they've invited all these black people, um, now emancipated black people, um, into the mouths of yellow fever, and they will die in unprecedented numbers. And they, you know, they cite, there's a, there's sort of a whole kind of cottage industry, in fact, in um, creating data to support this end in New Orleans, that basically emancipation um, would lead to um, the, the higher death rate of black people who um, were incapable of caring for themselves. This was, this was the entire logic of how this was the um, this was a huge sort of strain of um, racist Jim Crow thinking um, and sort of white supremacist thinking after the war, which is that emancipation was um, bad for black people who could not care for themselves and they could not take care of their own health. Um, it had been their masters before the war who had seen to it that they um, so they could remain healthy. So you see increasingly this is being um, this sort of yellow fever and immunity to it is being weaponized in all kinds of different ways um, and it's very adaptable to the changing political order. Um, and in fact, I've seen um, this is this also, um, I think, speaks to something else, which is quite interesting on this, which is that um, the after after the Civil War, too, I mean, after the 15th Amendment, of course, when black people were um, enfranchised, black men, excuse me, were enfranchised, um, you see um, the same kind of seasonal gerrymandering happen that happened before the war, only now um, it's not necessarily to keep out unacclimated people, but to keep black people from voting. And so there will be, um, so within um, black neighborhoods in New Orleans, the registration office to vote um, when it was open, and sometimes it was open only for, you know, one hour on, you know, at three in the morning on a Tuesday, um, they would open only during you know peak epidemic times when people would otherwise have fled the um, fled New Orleans, um, and it would also you know, sort of change. They would, you know, they would quite literally say, well, you know, we we won't quarantine the docks, um, but you know these few blocks uh, around the Republican convention um, that is being held in New Orleans or in Cato Parish or in some place in in Louisiana, actually we're going to quarantine this because this is you know that's where the yellow fever infection is, and there's a striking um, overlap between where sort of Black political meetings are happening after the war. Um, so, um, and especially Republican sort of union league clubs um, and these kind of inland quarantines that are suddenly thrown up um, and justified on the basis of yellow fever, but actually have nothing to do with yellow fever. It's all about um, essentially controlling um, black political suffrage and black independence um, and black political rights after the war. But it's a great question. Okay, so CB asks, have you come across anything you would consider to be a conspiracy theory about yellow fever, or at least something akin to a conspiracy theory from the period? Hmm. Um, well, yes. Um, yeah, yes, um, quite a bit. So I, I actually think, so 
this could kind of connect to the present in fact. So about um, about nine months ago, the lieutenant governor of Texas said, you know, well, we, we need to reopen the economy um, because, you know, I will go out and I will risk my life um, and all grandparents should I will go out and risk my life, you know, to reopen this economy. And this is, it's your patriotic duty to go out and get sick um, to, you know, so that we can go back to normal life. Um, so, and this um, really reminded me of one of the sort of major conspiracy theories. Um, I think we can call it that, that existed in the deep South where for, um, by the 1850s, um, you have these sort of disease denialists. Um, the, there's an entire industry of people churning out literature and talks and essays. Um, essentially saying that um, yellow fever was barely a problem, um, that contracting it was a, you know, this was a mild ailment, um, that, you know, an acclimation was a process easily undertaken. And then there's also an entire sort of subset of this group that basically tries to, you know, they so they blame yellow fever on foreigners if it comes, but then they also try to basically say that yellow fever is a an abolitionist conspiracy theory, that it doesn't actually exist in New Orleans, that this, um, this was just concocted all along to discredit and undercut the cotton kingdom. And they're constantly, they're, you know, they're paranoid about abolitionists. Um, and they sort of meld, in fact, their pro-slavery ideology with this kind of disease denialism. Um, and they become part and parcel of the same kind of conspiratorial worldview. But they are constantly, um, you know, even Samuel Cartwright um, spends a lot of um, intellectual energy in trying to essentially attribute the um, existence of yellow fever, if it ever comes, um, to abolitionists um, who are apparently um, intent on destroying the South. Um, or then um, th then there's also this sort of like subset of this too, where people are saying, well, yellow fever actually doesn't exist at all. Um, so what are, you know, what are people even talking about? Um, this is not dangerous. And any, and any, anyone who's, you know, speaking about yellow fever, they just, you know, they're just jealous outsiders. They don't understand um, life here. They have no business speaking on our affairs. Um, only we as Southerners, as deep Southerners, um, can have the have the authority to actually be able to speak about um, such ma uh, manners, and so in some sense it's not a conspiracy theory as in, in in the way that you're sort of talking about it, but they're constantly speaking in these kind of conspiratorial terms, and these pro-slavery theorists also very much think that everyone else around them um, is sort of conspiring against them. This this to me often feels very much you know it's it's sort of part and parcel of this kind of shrinking South um, feeling that we see in the 1850s, this increasingly paranoid mindset of these Southerners who are scared that unless slavery expands, um, it will um, die out and they will become the sort of structural minority in American life. And you see this played out a lot around um, the rhetoric of disease. So yeah, but it's interesting. I'll, I, you know, I, I often get asked the question of, you know, so what's the equivalent of like a, you know, a mask? And is there a way that people can display their immunity or th that they care about public health? Um, I'm not quite, there's, there's not the equivalent of masks in the 19th century, but I, you know, I'm always on the lookout for a good conspiracy theory. So if you see one actually in your own work, please send it, you know, send it my way. Any time of night, I'm, I'm always awake. So please, please do. Great. Okay. So we have time for one more question, which comes from Lizzie Evans. And that is, did ideas of immunoprivilege interact slash conflict with people experiencing long-term health effects following yellow fever? And she's asking that question, particularly in the context of long COVID. This is a great question. Um, fantastic question. So, um, so this is this is this is difficult in some sense to answer because um, it's very hard to sort of die to let's say um, sort of separate out the impacts of yellow fever on a person long term from the uh, you know the many other ailments that would have impacted their um, you know life in the long term. 
So some yellow fever victims um, said that they went straight back to normal. They had no physical scars, you know, unlike smallpox, which, you know, you can have, you'll, you'll be poxed or um, scarred or rashed or something like this. Um, there is no necessarily physical um, physical mark left on you after immunity, which is why it's invisible, um, after you've gained immunity, which is why it's invisible. But some um, yellow fever victims experienced sort of loss of eyesight um, or, you know, they, they not loss of eyesight, perhaps, but a sort of dimming of eyesight. Some people were permanently kind of weakened, they claimed, um, they said, um, that they felt crippled um, sort of long term by um, by their inability to kind of regain their full energy. And um, again, I think it's quite hard to sort of disentangle as a as the direct result of yellow fever and not malaria, which was also endemic to the Deep South. And um, it was a disease that many people also would have had either coke, um, sort of at the same time or perhaps before or after. But I think it's fair to say that there probably were longer term impacts of yellow fever than they wanted to suggest. Um, and I've seen, you know, it's um, it's interesting. I the, the sort of the vast majority of sources um, talking about acclimation or becoming immune and getting sick with and surviving yellow fever, they always sort of talk about it in this kind of you're either, you know, it's a, it's binary. Um, so you're either unacclimated or you are acclimated. And there's no kind of, there's no room in this discourse for talking about um, the sort of unintended consequences or um, impact or symptoms that persisted long term. Um, and of course, they those sort of long term impacts existed, but they just did, they didn't, they, you know, they are either suppressed or really, um, you know, they just weren't, um, at the forefront of people's minds. Most people that I've read when I read, you know, letters or diaries, they're just so delighted to have survived in the first place. They don't often talk about, um, you know, they don't talk about anything besides sort of like, I feel weak today, but I hope that tomorrow I feel better. Um, and you know, they often sort of do go on the up and up, but it's it's, it's it's a little bit different than COVID like this, which I think this is gonna be one of the really interesting um, things to sort of track and follow where people, you know, do have lasting symptoms um, that and we don't know how long they will last. Um, and of course, people can be reinfected from COVID, um, which is also another sort of twist on this, which, um, well, we will see. Um, we, I think we'll, we will all see just the impact this has on our own lives. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you for uh, those very insightful answers, Cameron. Uh, in closing, I'd just like to extend our thanks to you uh, for delivering such an insightful and thought-provoking lecture, one that I think we'll all be thinking about a lot over the coming days. Uh, and as I've already mentioned, uh, this was the first in a series of lectures that the Institute will be hosting throughout the rest of March. On the 15th of March at five o'clock again, we will be hearing from Professor Marcus Coto and Dr. Gabriel Lopez on the coronavirus crisis in Brazil. Then uh, a week following that, on the 22nd of March, again at five o'clock, we will hear from John Fabian Witt of Yale Law School, who will examine the history of the US law of epidemics. I'm just going to post uh, the links to sign up to those two events in the chat now. Uh, so um, thank you again to Professor Oliveris and thank you all for attending. And I hope to see you again uh, next week. And there's just been a question about whether a recording will be available. And yes, this uh, has been recorded, so that should uh, be available shortly.